Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Aaron. And third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, Aaron. Views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR's School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about behavioral therapies for bipolar disorder. And to help us with that discussion, we are very pleased to have join us Dr. Chris Aiken. Dr. Aiken is a psychiatrist and psychotherapist whose work focuses on natural and lifestyle approaches to mood disorder disorders. He is the director of the Mood Treatment Center, the bipolar section editor of for Psychiatric Times, and an instructor at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He hosts the weekly Carlotte Psychiatry Podcast with Kelly Newsom and is its editor-in-chief. He's written two books on mood disorders, including The Depression and Bipolar Workbook, 30 Ways to Lift Your Mood and Strengthen the Brain, released last year. Dr. Aiken, thank you for joining us on this episode of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you. I want to get the ball rolling with just saying, you know, when I was raised, my education training was that medication was the first uh, go-to evidence-based treatment for bipolar disorder. And uh, maybe the therapies, uh, psychosocial interventions were more supportive of that, of maintaining medication adherence and things like that. But how have things changed perhaps in the last 10 years? The story starts in the 1990s when Dr. Frank was visiting a bipolar conference where, for patients, where patients go to support each other, a national conference. And she was a speaker there. She discovered that all of these patients were getting really, their mood was getting very disrupted. And she talked to them about it. And they revealed that this is quite common if they go to a big event, a big gathering that disrupts their daily schedule, or they get some jet lag, that their mood gets really off. So this is a common phenomenon. They all knew about it. She decided to study it and turned it into a psychotherapy called interpersonal social rhythm therapy, sometimes just called social rhythm therapy, because it's about regulating your daily rhythms to treat bipolar disorder. So if you were approaching a client for the first time in the assessment, what kind of questions would you ask that would get you to the type of information you would need to uh, set, set this kind of intervention up? Well, in a first interview, you're probably going to ask about a lot of the mood episodes that they've had. And one thing to ask about is to look for triggers that make those mood episodes happen. For example, I, I did see a patient who only have them in airports. Well, what's going on there? Well, oh. his manic episodes in airports were related to flying over different time zones, or you might notice that they're happening in the holidays. It could be a seasonal depression, but it could be that that's when their daily routines get disrupted and they're not getting up to go to work every day. Um, a common one is a, you're a caretaker for someone and that person dies and now you've had a disruption to your daily routine. Mm -hmm. So as you get to know their lives, you're usually going to find some areas where their mood has been disrupted after a change in their daily routines. And sometimes it's a good change, like a vacation. Sometimes it's not. I, I'll tell you a funny story. We actually have a letter template because I'm on the East Coast called the Disney World Letter. And it says, please allow X to go back to the hotel room at 5 p.m., her doctor requires this for management of her condition. 
So we, the thing about Disney World trips is you want to make every use of that Disney World dollar. So you end up staying in the big park all day, all night, and then it sets off bipolar episodes. And we've seen some people get divorced at Disney World because of this. So we give them all these letters that go to the amusement park. I think that this discussion is so important. I want to underline what is happening. So I think a lot of us in psychiatry or psychology think about bipolar disorder as being one of our more genetically influenced disorders uh, in mental health. And so we think of it more biologically in our biopsychosocial you know, um, construct. And so therapy isn't, like you said, Aaron, the go-to first line thing that we're thinking of. We want to get them started right away on medication. But what we're seeing is just how much environment um, plays a role in, in every mental health disorder, including bipolar disorder. Right. And, and, yeah. and you've created, or, or the, I, not you, the, the community with, with a lot of your participation has created various and promoted various therapies for bipolar, which are behavioral in nature. And we were talking about how on one hand, this is radical because it's been seen as bipolar as a medication thing. And on the other hand, so obviously necessary one, because, um, you know, to, um, to speak, I think in averages, a bipolar patient spends three days in mania for every one day they, they spend in depression. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Three days in depression for every one. I'm glad I caught that for every one day they spend in mania. And we have these great therapies for depression, which are behavioral therapies, but also because, um, it sounds like so much of this is preventable, uh, using some of these cues, which I think we're going to get much deeper into. Yes, yeah, and those excited. are biological cues. You know, the point you made about how we view psychotherapy is right on. And I'm going to expand on that, that we need to view psychotherapy as having biological effects. It's interesting. We, mm -hmm. we now have studies showing that these therapies we're going to talk about alter the biology of bipolar disorder. They have measurable changes in these daily fluctuations of corticosteroids, or the stress hormones that set their circadian rhythm. Alan, yeah. you were alluding to the therapy for mania, which, boy, it's amazing. It it um, directly works through the melatonin system. So it's like, we're going to do a psychotherapy that works through your melatonin system. So these yeah. have very biological effects and they actually affect the body in ways that our medications do not. So they're very necessary. Right. They, to, to throw back to some stuff we've talked about in the past, they, they affect the glymphatic system. Um, so, so there's this great word that I'm just, I've just been bursting at the seams to bring up on, and on this episode with you. And it's, uh, it is a giver of time. So in German, we have Geiber for giver and Zeit, like, like Zeitgeist. So together those make Zeitgeiber. And uh, would you care to tell us some of your favorite bipolar disorder Zeitgeibers and why they matter? Yes, Zeitgeibers is a word the Germans use for something that gives you a sense of your daily routine, your daily time. So like a ritual, I always have my coffee at nine in the morning. And uh, that would sound like a good one. But Judy Frank, who started this research, looked at hundreds of potential Zeitgeibers, including walking the dog. 
And she came up, the research boiled down to just four that really made a difference in mood. And I'll tell you what they are because they're important to share with your patients. The time you get out of bed in the morning, the time you start your work or chores or studies, so goal-directed activity, and the time you start to have meaningful interaction with other people, which means not just like you're standing at the bus stop together or checking out at Target, but they're actually having an engaging conversation, perhaps a work meeting or taking your kids to school while you're talking to them. And number four is the time you eat dinner. And that one surprised Dr. Frank. She's like, what? What about the time you go to bed? Uh, that one didn't show up. And her explanation was that people with bipolar really can't regulate the time they go to bed very well. And they shouldn't try to, it'll just frustrate them. And maybe something about the time they have dinner helps to indirectly regulate the time they fall asleep to sleep. Interesting. But when you so think about it, all of those things affect your body's hormones. Just think about the way you felt when your boss brought you in and said that you might lose your job, you know, or when you when your girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with you, it's an intense interaction and you felt it in your body. You felt the flush of love or the racing heart. So these are all affecting your hormones, all of these actions. So describe Dr. Aiken, some of the interventions given those four crucial periods of the day, what sort of, how would you assist a client in becoming aware of those? What kind of things would you, uh, how would you help them focus on those four phases for their benefit? I start by changing the name of the disorder. I don't like the word bipolar disorder. It's, you know, if you got attention deficit disorder, you know what it is. You have a deficit of attention. All of our psych disorders are mostly named after what the patient experiences. So I'll tell them your disorder is really called fragile circadian rhythm disorder. And the only reason you're seeing me is that you were born with the genetics for a very fragile, very easily broken circadian clock. And you've shared that with me about when you go on trips or you have disruptions to your routines or the seasons change or your hormones change, if uh, particularly with women, then that disrupts your clock and you feel worse. You feel that it sets off your mood. So what would you do if you had a clock that ran fast or slow? Well, you can't get a new clock. So you would set it every day so it doesn't get too far off. And I'm going to teach you the things to do that can set your clock. So let's start with the most important is the morning, the time you get out of bed. And here's a tip. That means the time you get out of bed and stand up. So what happens when you stand up? Well, your entire cardiovascular system has to tighten up so you don't faint. And that requires norepinephrine to pump. So we already got neurohormones pumping there. And we're going to go through the day with different activities like that. And ideally, we want all of them be, to be done at the same time, give or take 15 minutes. And that sounds kind of harsh, but that's um, what Dr. Frank's research found is that if you get them to within 15 minutes, it um, doubles the length of recovery from bipolar. It's an amazing effect. Was there a place in the morning for uh, loud music with a fast beat? I made that up. Yeah, we, um, All of us who do this work are struggling to find ways for this to work for people. Like, uh, for example, I, a lot of my patients don't have anyone that they interact with. So how are we going to get that one going, you know? Mm. And I've seen studies where if you sit with your dog, the same areas of the brain light up 
as when you sit with your best friend. So why not? So we substitute animals for people. That's what I do. Now, I've spoken (laughs) with other researchers and and they disapprove of that. They disagree. And I I sympathize. You know, they think that um, we should be getting our patients to have more relationships because that's an important part of their recovery. Um, but you know, sometimes you just can't get them to do that. So one I did think of is uh, music. Um, they did an interesting study in Australia where they found that music that um, has like a real uh, melodic, catchy tone that you just want to sing to yourself that makes you jazzed up led people to wake up the best. Uh, part of the problem here is that it's just hard to get out of bed as a person with a mood disorder. So always ask your patients, how long does it take you to feel awake in the morning? It might take them four hours. And that's called sleep inertia, which is the tendency for the brain to just slowly wake up and never fully awake. There's two things that we've discovered can help people, people like you or me or anybody, but particularly with bipolar. One is called brisk awakening, is getting up and doing active things, walking outside for five minutes, splashing cold water on your face or a cold shower. That's going to get that norepinephrine pumping and starting to do active, particularly physically motion things. So music that gets you moving might be a good idea there. Bright light. So that's brisk awakening. It's uh, hard to do, but it has amazing effects on depression and on improving sleep and bipolar. The other is a dawn simulator, which is we can all buy them. I use one myself. It's just a, a $20 to $70 device that gradually turns on a sunrise in your room. And in doing so, it gradually lifts you from deep sleep to full awakening. So when you wake up, you're just like, oh, here I am. I'm ready to go instead of who did this to me? like a lot of people feel. So that is, both of those are good cures for the sleep inertia that keeps people with bipolar and depression just dragging in their bed all day. I used a dawn simulator for a while in medical mm-hmm. school. Wow, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. There's a study in medical students and they found it, the medical students use less caffeine if they used them. Um, what did it do for you? I think it did help. Um, I woke up a little too early on it, but I, it did feel good waking up with it. Um, I was in Omaha. So in the winters, you know, it, it's just dark a lot of the time. Oh, and you bring up a good point. You know, that most uh, residents and some medical students might have shift work disorder because of that. Um, There's a disorder in sleep clinics. They call it social jet lag, which just means that you're a night owl who has to get up really early in the morning, like for surgery rotation. And then you sleep in on the weekends to catch up for it. The result of this is that you're always experiencing a little bit of jet lag. And that's what I share with my patients because they're all being stigmatized out there. And I'm like, nobody's ashamed to have jet lag. You know, you talk about it with your friends and really what you've got here as a person with bipolar, it's just a bigger form of jet lag. So, so I think one of the sources of the stigma and something that I want to bring up as a question to you about the challenges in this therapy is that many of the the publicly witnessed behaviors that that are seen in bipolar patients, particularly very sick bipolar patients, and also the ones that we see in the psychiatric hospital are characterized by hyperactivity and a, a, a paired lack of insight about their disease. So how do you get someone who, and, and that, that term lack of insight in psychiatry, we use that to mean 
maybe they don't believe that they have bipolar. And despite many people in their family having told them, hey, this is what's going on, they're, they're really not on board with that identity. Um, how, how, do, how do these people fit into this model and, or don't they? Well, are you saying that um, part of the problem here is that bipolar one, when you have mania, by definition, makes you do things that are socially unacceptable. And that's always going to propagate stigma because that's just the way that that disorder tends to go. That's a much better way to say it okay. than how I said it. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I struggle with that. And, you know, that is true. Like, I've treated um, uh, literally rock stars with bipolar, and I'm like, oh, come on, you're, you're a rock star. You don't have bipolar. You're, you're paid to act crazy. And they're like, no, man, my band was going to fire me for what I was doing. <laughs> so even as a rock star, you can go outside the social norms. And then they studied bipolar in the Amish community, and they had to redefine it. It was defined as trying to buy machinery, urges to use a payphone, and my favorite, vacationing at the wrong season. Vacationing at the wrong season. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it will, will, and that makes sense, right? Because that could really, if you live by crops, which maybe society would oh, yeah. uh, function better if more of us did, then you can't, <laughs> right? You can't, if you're that connected to the land and its natural consequences, um, you respect that, right? I guess that brings us back to it. Yeah. Sorry. Were you going to uh, go oh, just that, um, that that is the ideal life is um, getting up at the, with the sun, going out and working the fields, you know, being physically active outdoors with lots of sunlight and going back and meditating with your Bible by candlelight at the end of the day. I mean, the Amish really did have it down this therapy. So you're and right. they're a very communal community. Yeah. Yeah. I really they should have them. that they're on their signs. People. A communal yeah. community. So, so, <laughs> so, so one, one of the things, um, and, and I do want to get back to your description of the day, cause I think that's important, but I, I, if I can put in one more, um, little detour, half the great speakers I've ever heard talk about bipolar are saying the key problem with mania is that it's so egocentric meaning these people are into it they feel great they feel artistic they feel gifted and talented and then the other half of the great lecturers are saying that's a totally ignorant viewpoint these people are suffering immensely and you should never condescend in that way or, or assume that someone's enjoying their manic episode is, is the uh, truth in that where, where do you land on this i'd like to meet these people they sound both wonderful and i think they're both bringing up two very important parts of the disorder basically what's happening there is that um some are just better at recognizing mixed states than others because the the ones you said where it's terrible those are mixed states and dysphoric mania and those are more common than the euphoric manias and this goes way back to kreplin a hundred years ago who discovered bipolar he called it manic depression I was reading his book and he complains like a, like your typical um, bitter old doctor. He's complaining. Many of my colleagues undervalue the importance of mixed states and do not even recognize them in their patients that have them. <laughs> but he was fascinated by mixed states. He was like, you can see panic attacks during a mania. <laughs> so mania will present in, um, I think mania is often the euphoric side only for a few days. 
And then the person becomes irritable nobody can keep up with them and they come impatient and then they're crawling out of their skin. And usually after a few weeks, it's going to turn into a mixed state eventually, which is the agitated side. So both are true. And we talked about the influence of environment. Uh, how important is the family? I know there's an evidence-based treatment with family-focused therapy. Is that something that you include? Yeah, that's a separate therapy than this one, but it's so important and it does reduce the relapse rate. It's um, called family therapy for bipolar and it's, it's useful for depression and schizophrenia too. It basically involves teaching the family good communication skills like I statements, I feel. And a lot of it is watching your nonverbal behavior. So more warm, accepting, less critical, more empathic, nonverbal behavior. What I'll tell family members is uh, people with mood disorders are very sensitive, right, to interpersonal insult and injury. So I'm teaching them to not make critical comments. And I have to tell them, if you just go up to your son and say, did you leave the butter out last night? That's a critical comment that for a person with depression, that feels like a trauma, like yeah. an attack. So the family often doesn't notice what they're doing. And mm -hmm. then the, the son reacts and they're like, why are you reacting like that? So we have to teach them that things are interpreted differently by their relatives. It takes a lot of work. That is great to do. And family connections do change your hormones. You know, your hormones are different when you're around different people. And to that point, one of the most important family tips that fits into this therapy is to avoid intense conversations and fights in the evening. Of course, you don't want to be stimulated. Uh -huh. A big part of this therapy is um, people with bipolar often have reversed circadian rhythms. They're more active in the night and more passive in the day. And we want them to switch that. We want them to take the things that they're doing all night long, all the exciting things and do them in the morning and do the mellow things at night. That's a big part of this therapy. And part of that mellowness can be mellow music. And also like Alan was alluding to getting into more yellow lights in the evening, mellow right. lights. So do you wanna, are there any favorite nighttime? Um, some of the things I think we, we do occasionally talk about um, blue blocker glasses and uh, the effects of blue light on the podcast. We'd love to, a lot of, I think, for me, what I've learned about this is, is from you. Um, do you, first I have to ask, do you use them yourself? And then do you have yes, thoughts? I do. Should I go put them yes. on? It's, it's it is late. Here. Yeah. It I'm going to be putting mine put on in about on. 20 minutes. Um, yeah. I just got I, my mom some. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I think we should all use them. They reduce the risks of cancer, diabetes, that you deepen your sleep. And my wife told me that I was less irritable when I wore them the next day, which makes sense because you're sleeping deeper. <laughs> they work so well. Uh, you just immediately get tired. If my mom is listening, I also bought her some. She, oh, I right. would love Aww. it if she would wear them. <laughs> she yeah, offered and... them back to me after she tried them a day. <laughs> Sounds like it's the um, best Mother's Day gift for 2022. Yes. Yes. Oh, Let's buy one. stock. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so they are... Um, it's real easy to destigmatize. Like, you know, I wear them and a lot of professional athletes wear them because they improve, they, they improve motor performance the next day as well as uh, test performance. And I That's keep a, fantastic a pair fact, in my office 
and let people try them on because they're surprisingly pleasant to look through. That's one of the things you got to warn people when they wear these amber colored glasses that filter out the blue light is you put them on, have them put them on and then you, then you get real serious and you say, now be careful. Don't wear them during the day. I know you're going to want to because you feel less anxious when you wear them, but only after 6 p.m. You get real serious like that, and it, it conveys to the patient the truth, which is these are having medicinal effects. When you wear those blue light filtering glasses, if you get the ones that are 100% filter, your melatonin is going to go way up. If you have just a nightlight on in your room, the melatonin is not going to go up so much. So it, we're really talking about 100% filtering of blue light, easy to do with a $10 pair of glasses. Let me read you the type. It's UVEX, U-V-E-X, Ultraspec, or UVEX Skyper, S-K-Y-P-E-R on Amazon. Those are the $10 ones. They're used in laser factories. Apparently, I'm so ignorant. I didn't know all this, that in factories, you got lasers going everywhere to help you align the parts and you don't want them to hit your eyes. So the factory workers got to wear these glasses. Ah. And then you can also go to lowbluelights.com and all of their pairs are certified. So those are the only pairs that I know of that were used in the research. Outside of that, you'll see a lot of them online and they don't block 100%. So I wouldn't recommend them to patients. So I like about, to... Sorry, go ahead, Alan. Oh, I, sorry. Okay, I don't know that this was worth interrupting you for, but I, 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 uh, I like to tell my patients, you know, there's a lot on there that say they're clear. If it's clear, they're not blocking blue light. That's not how the color wheel works. The ones that I have came with a little blue LED that you can shine at yourself, which is super fun. Oh, that's um, great. But I also great. like to tell my patients, buy ones, don't spend money on them unless you're getting ones that you'll feel better about. Cause so in uh, my residency, they gave me a pair for night shift work and then, but they looked so kind of like a cocaine rock star that I just couldn't, I was so embarrassed wearing them around my apartment complex. So you have to spend enough money that you kind of like at least a little bit how you look with them on. <laughs> yeah, although it's good for them to get the $10 ones just to try them and then they yeah. can move to the 50. There you go. Low blue lights, yeah. they do look better on the low blue lights. Yep. And you know, you're right. I mean, not everybody knows that these are, are cool. A lot of football players wear them. So it can just add to the stigma. So you want your patient to have a, a line like um, I have an eye condition or something like that. So we have about four minutes left. I want to make mm -hmm. sure that we, you know, talked um, as much as possible about behavioral therapy for bipolar disorder. Was there anything else, Dr. Aiken, that you wanted to add? So the big part of this is getting your client to do some of these things at the same time each day. You use the motivational interview or some variety, whatever helps collaboratively get them there because this is their life and they need to take it on and do what they want to do. You have to work through a freedom approach is the key thing. And also a discovery approach. I just gave you what the research has found. You really want your client to discover their own Zeitgebers. Like one of my clients, it was reading the Bible in the morning it was what kept her mood stable at a certain time. And finally, the uh, I can't stress enough. It's just, you know, you got your circadian clock running. So it's all about bright light in the morning, however they get it, whether it's the dawn simulator or stepping outside and darkness at night. So the way we do the dark therapy, which is the first behavior therapy that actually treats mania. So they did controlled studies and it had a big effect size in mania within a week 
is you put these glasses on at 6 p.m. Think of that. 6 p.m. is when the sun goes down in winter. So that's your darkest winter day. And then if you don't have them on, you must be in a pitch dark room. So tell your patient in your bedroom, you should not be able to see your hand in front of your face, pitch dark. So all night long, if they get out of bed and they can't sleep, and by the way, it's good these make you feel tired, Alan, but a lot of clients, they don't feel tired when they wear the glasses. And we want to remind them that it's, these are not about sleeping. This is what's fascinating. In the, clients think you're giving these glasses to sleep. In the study, the people who wore the glasses actually slept less, but their sleep became more regular, more circadian regular. And you got to tell your patients that because they'll often come in and say, I stopped wearing them. They didn't make me fall asleep. Well, no. So I tell patients that it's protecting them from the effects of insomnia. And so all night long, they're either in a pitch dark room or they got the glasses on, which is virtual darkness. Either way, their circadian nocturnal hormones are bumping up when they do that. And that's what stabilizes the mania. At 8 a.m., they take it all off and do the bright light. I, okay, something you said there really piqued my interest, freedom approach. I, that's really interesting to me. Can you tell me more about that? This is just central to all psychotherapy and even medication. I think that we go at it with respect for their autonomy foremost. You know, we always say do no harm first, but I would say respect their autonomy first. You know, Dr. Akun, we had a, our previous show with you. We talked about underused medications. And I take it that uh, this therapy, interpersonal and social rhythm therapy, is underutilized. And now, what is your explanation for that? I would say probably most folks use cognitive behavioral therapies. Do you have a brief take on that? Yes, cognitive behavioral therapies do work, particularly for the depressed phase of bipolar. But even the CBT for bipolar is building in these circadian things. So all of the evidence-based therapies for bipolar are building in many of these circadian techniques. They should be taught along with it. We know a lot about what improves mental health these days. We know that exercise does, Mediterranean diet does. And if you're a therapist out there, you should feel comfortable about sharing that. Because even if you're a therapist who doesn't like to be directive, you know, who likes to let the client discover everything on their own, like psychodynamic, you should still have a way to at least educate them on the basics and let them take it from there. Because a lot of people just don't know. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about behavioral therapies for bipolar disorder with our guest, Dr. Chris Aiken. Thank you, Dr. Aiken, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on kucr.gmail.com, and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. We'll read it. We take our feedback very uh, uh, with, with a lot of respect and care. And that's why we appreciate your review. So uh, we'd like you to uh, post more of those. Thank you very much. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.